Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. So welcome back. Uh, We're in part four. Part four today. Uh, This is the final part of a sermon series that we've been doing on friendship. And I have so enjoyed the last two weeks studying two of the epic biblical friendships with you. We did... uh, Jonathan and David two weeks ago, that was fun. Uh, Paul and Barnabas last week, and it was pre-study style. So I, I hope that you learn stuff about those two stories that you never knew before. Um, but today, um, we're going to be a little less teachy and a little more preachy, if you want. I tend to lean teachy, but I like preachy every once in a while. Because um, here's what I want to do. I want to close the series today by talking about the most beautiful, the most unbreakable, the most self-sacrificing, far-reaching, unrelenting friendship in human history. Jesus' friendship with us. Uh, And the reason why the sermon is at the top today is because afterward we're going to pray and worship and respond together because our friend Jesus is worth it. Would you do me a favor? Would you stand right now? Stand with me. If you're not able to stand, that's okay. Um, allow your heart to be just in a posture of reverence. For those of you who can stand, please do. And we're going to read from John chapter 15, uh, starting in verse 9, working through verse 15. This is Jesus' like, most profound teaching, in my humble opinion, on, on friendship. We've read parts of it so far. Let's just kind of read the whole bit here. Verse 9. Our Lord and King says, uh, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. So remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love. Just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I've told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. This is my commandment. Love each other. In the same way I've loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now are you my uh, now you are my friends, since I have told you everything the Father told me. The word of the Lord, you can be seated. What a beautiful passage. Thanks be to God for all of his word. Every last word of his word. Now, to keep it simple, uh, the passage says that Jesus calls us friend. You. Me. Jesus. Which sounds amazing, by the way, but also a little bit strange. Okay, I'm a curious person, so when I read passages that say things like this, I always have so many questions, right? Like, I have theological questions, like, well, what kind of God makes friends? Um, and is it normal for, like, gods to be friendly? I don't hang out in the God community, so I'm not sure how they interact with, you know, each other or others. Um, oh, and then, of course, I have practical questions, like, well, what do you want to be friend with somebody like me? 
Um, and uh, if, if he did, is he a good friend? Would I want to be friends back with him? Because sometimes being friends with powerful people is just not, you know, they can they just kind of be all about themselves. Um, oh, and, and how does one even go about being friends with a God? Uh, so today I just kind of want to preach around these questions. Just preach around them. Like what in the world does it mean to be a friend of God? Now, you see, I think, in my humble opinion, this is one of the most fantastic things about Christianity. Because we say, what kind of God makes friends? Hmm, our kind. Our kind. We actually believe in a God who is friendly. At his essence, at his core. Now, I know that sounds a little nutty to some people, but, but this idea has actually proven to be incredibly powerful, especially over the last few years in our cultural moment. There are people right now in this room that would tell you that through all the social distancing and all the polarization and all the isolation and all the other tragedies of the last few years, their relationship with Jesus is the only thing that got them through. Can I get an amen? I have a friend who every morning, um, he, he, he wakes up, he goes down to his, his prayer table and he gets his Bible and, uh, and his journal and he sets out two coffee mugs and he pours a coffee mug for him. And he pours a coffee mug for Jesus. And it's not like Jesus drinks it. The coffee doesn't like disappear or something. Um, but it's just a symbolic reminder each day. As the steam rises off the hot coffee, it warms his soul because he knows that he does not have to do that day alone. Now, uh, one thing I feel like you learn the older and older you get is that... Um, Trying to control or predict life is a futile endeavor. Um, we're all trying to make plans, like five-year plans, 10-year plans, retirement plans, whatever, right? But the reality is, is that we just don't know where life's going to take us or what it's going to throw at us, do we? Think about where you were at 10 years ago, just 10. If you really want to be mind-blown, go 20, right? Just go, go back to like 2013, and you tell me, did you think you would be here where you're at today? Like, what's happened over the last 10 years? Who were your best friends then? Who was your spouse then? Where did you live then? Where did you work then? Could you have predicted where you are at today? Maybe for some of us in the student section, were you born then? Like, you know? <laughs> We don't know what the future holds, do we? We don't know if the road's going to turn left or right. Uh, we don't know if the path's going to be really smooth today or really, really rocky tomorrow. But what the Christian can know is that no matter where the path turns, whether it goes right or left, no matter if the road is smooth or rocky, we can know for certain who will be walking with us every day. And that is the friend that we have in Jesus. There is real power to that belief. Oh, there's power. The vast majority of people I know, by the way, alive here on the planet Earth, they believe in gods or the divine or the spirit world in, in some way. They think you can connect with the divine. Uh, the divine. Uh, like everyone thinks that the, the young generation, the next generation, doesn't believe in God or they're rejecting God. They're not rejecting the idea of God. They're just rejecting irrelevant or harmful religion, Right? But they're actually incredibly open to the idea of the spirit world, spiritual realities. There's a tremendous interest and hunger for the transcendent in our culture. 
I would say that our culture is haunted, literally haunted with this unshakable feeling that life is more than all the stuff and technology and affluence that we have. Like, look at all the shows and movies that imagine spiritual realities and how popular they are. Look at the massive resurgent of ancient practices like, um, like meditation or uh, pilgrimage, all to feed the spirit part of your soul, right? Everybody today is all spiritual but not religious. I pray to the universe, whatever. Like there's something out there. For years now, I've been reading the books, right? And for years, the secular academy has predicted that we're going to get too smart for religion in the West. We're just too scientific. We're going to grow out of it. We'll become too enlightened for it. Yet here we are. We can't exercise the ghosts, can we? Like we got a better understanding of the sciences and more incredible technology than any civilization ever. And yet, just like the most primitive people of the ancient world who were praying to the gods of the rain and wind, there is an undeniable sense in us that there is more to life than what we can see. There is a God. We want to know him. We want to commune with him and experience his power. So look, when, when new people or outsiders or the next generation, when they come to your church, they're not looking for like celebrity swag or, or cultural relevance or whatever. They're asking, do these people know God? And I wonder what their experience is like here. So if you're out there and, uh, and you have been through like a season of, of heart-chilling loneliness or you feel just this deep emptiness in your heart or you're just searching for God, trying to put all that together, I want to invite you today, give friendship with Jesus a chance. Just give it a chance. Interesting reality for you. No other God will allow you to call him friend. This is important. Christianity is the only major world religion out there that describes God as love at his essence, essentially love. This is just good for you to know. It's a good point of clarification if you're sort of searching for God and trying to figure out where you want to land or what you want to try. Uh, Buddhism teaches that God's actually impersonal, not personal, but impersonal. They believe in order to reach nirvana, you have to uh, control your inner passions and emotions. So like love, for example, um, you don't want to love too little, but you don't want to love too much either. That's the pathway to contentment. Restrain those things. Now, again, Christianity is all about self-control and restraining most things, except love. It's like, no, but, but love is it. Like, unleash the love. Give it all for love. Self-sacrificial love. That's at the center of it, right? Very different, different way of seeing the world. Uh, Islam teaches that Allah is God. And uh, while Allah may be merciful or compassionate, those are traits that he chooses. But love isn't essential to uh, Allah's nature. So, like, for Islam, the goal of a relationship with God isn't a relationship, if you will. It's just submission. That's what Muslim means. Did you know that? One who submits to God. And as Christians, we're like, well, amen. We submit to Jesus too. He is our king. We obey him. But we have a dual role relationship with him. We're also his friends. He's our king, but we're friends with the king. And that brings a reverence and fear to the relationship, but also a warmth and a care. Uh, if you believe in no God, uh, then I guess your God is like science, right? So that means uh, love. Love is really nothing more than just brain chemistry. You don't have a, a soulmate or what? Like you don't have a soul. So don't quit talking about soulmates. Um, 
And whatever you think you feel when you fall in love, it's, just, it's really just a chemical response that's developed over thousands of years because it helped our ancestors survive and find food. Self-sacrificial love, like what we see on the cross, from a purely scientific perspective, it makes no sense. It is unnatural and it is also quite foolish. Nature shows us survival of the fittest. Jesus' cross shows us self-sacrifice of the fittest. And again, just incredibly disorienting in different ways to see the world. So look, it's really popular to say today, you know, I, I don't know what exactly I believe about God, but I do believe he's a God of, of love. There's like this benevolent, loving force out there behind it all. If you believe that, good. I agree with that sentiment. The force behind it all is essentially love, but you need to know that when you say that, that is an exclusively Christian claim. You're smuggling Christianity into your worldview, and I would like to give you like the full deal. Did you know that in Jesus' day, uh, the gods of the Greco-Roman pantheon, they were not friendly. <laughs> they were not, no, okay, they were constantly warring or, or sleeping around or using human beings as pawns in their game of thrones. Drunk, yes, often. Selfish, yes, uh, day in and day out. Vindictive, oh, there's some great stories of their vengeance, right? But friendly, rarely. This is actually uh, one of the things that helps uh, explain, though, uh, something that's honestly quite confusing about the Christian God. Okay, it's the Trinity. So, so the Trinity. Um, as Christians, we are really, really good at math. Have you ever noticed this? Because one plus one plus one equals one. That's the Trinity, right? Now, again, people are like, people struggle with like wrapping their minds around this. So one of the best explanations I've ever heard before was from Sam Albury, he's a theologian. And he was like, okay, if you wanna understand the Trinity, you have to think about things in terms of who and what, who and what, who and what. So let me give you an example of this. Uh, throw that picture up there. Does anybody know who this is? Yes, George Washington is who he is. So he is one who. And what is he? He's, um, he's a person, right? So one who, George Washington, one, uh, one what? A person. Okay, next slide here. Does anybody know who this is? Chewbacca, Chewbacca. Who is he? He's Chewbacca. What is he? He's a Wookiee, wow. Any Star Wars nerds in this church? You should be disappointed in your, brother, brother, your, your brethren here and your sisters. I was a little slow on the take. Okay, so one who, Chewbacca, one what? He's a Wookiee. Next slide here. Does anybody know who this is? Optimus Prime. Prime. That's right. Um, Who is he? He's Optimus Prime. What is he? So he's a robot and a truck. One who, two what's. You see? Now, this last one's a diagram of the Trinity. I would say that there is no metaphor, there is no diagram that perfectly describes the complexity and mystery of the Trinity. This one gets about as close as you can. Um, And what we see here is that God, our God, the Christian God, is three who's, Father, Son, and Spirit, but one what? God, three who's, one what, which makes him different than really anything that we can imagine. He's a plurality of who's. Hmm. Everybody say plurality of who's. Let's get preachy today. Touch your neighbor on the shoulder and say plurality, plurality of who's. No, okay. Now, look, 
A plurality of whose? Who cares? Okay, well, it's important. You should care. Because you see, for love to exist, there has to be a plurality of whose? Did you know this? There has to be at least two. There has to be a giver and a receiver. There has to be a subject and an object. And the Trinity, as confusing as it may be, suggests that our one God has existed for all of eternity in three persons who perfectly love one another. St. Augustine made this amazing observation about it. He said, the Trinity might be difficult for us to understand, but without it, God's, love is not, uh, God's, uh, God's essence is not love. It may be a choice that he made eventually when he created something else, right? But if he does not exist as a plurality of whose, then he was not love eternal. Do you see how this works? Love is not who he is. Are you following the argument? Okay, so um, people are all like, one plus one plus one equals one of the Trinity. That's stupid, right? It doesn't make any sense. Well, maybe, but the philosophers are all out there like, well, but you're the one who said you believe in a God of love, so there's really no way around it. Uh, the most famous passage that points to this is 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. Many believe this is the same John that wrote the gospel of John. Uh, John writes, God is love. Hmm. And God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. What's real love? It's not a fuzzy feeling. <laughs> It's a concrete action here. Not that we loved God, that he loved us by sending his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. He goes on in verse 16 again, and he says, God is love. And all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. Wow. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world, the word of the Lord. Now again, Christianity is the only major world religion that puts self-sacrificial, cross-shaped love, if you will, at the center of everything, including God. Wow. So in ancient Greece and Rome, they had this idea called the logos. Everybody say logos. There you go, Lagos. Okay, so philosophers believe that the Lagos was basically the principle that explained everything, the principle underneath everything. Um, so, uh, okay, I use this example a lot. Think of, think of a toaster, right? What's a toaster exist to do? To toast, very good. Toasters, toast. And if you toast with a toaster, you get great results. Now, if you use a toaster as a water filtration system, results will not be good. If you use a toaster as a bath bomb, not gonna turn out well for the people involved, right? Uh, there's a specific task, specific task that toasters are built for, and you'll get the full value of the toaster if you use it for that. That's logos, okay? Now, one of the great debates in philosophy today, ever since, um, is this. What's the logos then for everything? For everything. In Jesus' day, the Stoics believed that uh, it was just accepting whatever came at you with contentment. You've got to learn contentment. Uh, the Epicureans believed that it was pursuing pleasure. Just do what makes, makes you happy in the moment. The Pharisees, we know them from the Bible, they believed that it was strict obedience to the law. That was the Logos. So what was so revolutionary about John's gospel is that he comes along and he's like, oh, I know what the Logos is. I know. 
It's not a philosophical principle. Uh, it's, uh, it's not a pleasure. It's not a way of life or the law of the land. No, the logos is Jesus and a relationship with him. John chapter 1, verse 1, John writes it like this. He says, in the beginning was the word. The Greek word underneath the English word, word, is logos. So in the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. And then he writes in verse 14, and the logos became flesh, and he lived among us. Now, the Greek underneath lived among us is the Greek word eskinosin, eskinosin. Um, and it means something like to, uh, to tabernacle, to pitch a tent. Now, what was the, uh, the historical significance of tabernacles or tents for the ancient Israelites? Well, when they were wandering through the desert after Moses led them out, the tabernacles where the presence of God literally dwelled. And what is John saying here? Something explosive. He's saying God's presence now dwells in another tent, a tent of flesh, the tent of the Lagos, the tent of Jesus. If you want to go find God, don't go to a tent, go to him, if you will. The word became flesh, dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. Later on in John 14, Jesus says it like this. He says, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Basically, I'm the logos, right? No one come to the Father except through me. Right before his little friendship bit in John 15, uh, Jesus waxes eloquently on, um, on this metaphor of a vine, right? He calls himself a vine. You read this before? John 15, 5. He says, yes, I am the vine, you are the branches, remain in me. Right? Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, these are all metaphors that point to the belief that intimate relational connection with Jesus is the key to everything. It's the key to life itself. So can I just beg you today, are you searching are you a part of that emerging generation trying to figure out how to find God? Can I just beg you today, get to know Jesus. You can actually get to know him. It's crazy. Get to know him. It is sad how many people who grew up in Christianity but never got to know the main character. You can know him. You can. Like, okay, so first here's what you'll find. He's a sage. Oh, he's a sage. When you are in a relationship with Jesus, like he's always teaching you. I love this about him. Always speaking into my heart, into my body, into my emotions, into my mind. And he never runs out of things to say. Like when I run up against something hard in my life where I don't know what to do, I talk to him and he teaches me. When I run up into sin in my life and it's embarrassing and I never even saw it, I talk to him and he forgives me. But he also helps me break the chains. And his teachings, oh, they're just so beautiful but surprising. Like in all of his teachings, he subverts the narratives of popular culture. He's like, oh, you thought this about money? Oh, interesting. You thought this about power? Oh, you, you thought this about relationships? You heard that it was said this way? Well, I say unto you this. And then he tells a story and just flips the whole thing on its head. Like when we're young, I think we love the idea of being different or being a nonconformist or being a, a revolutionary, if you will. And so we can push back on religion because of that. Let me tell you, don't push back on Jesus. 
Wanna, wanna know a revolutionary? Allow me to introduce you to this carpenter from Nazareth whose ideas we're still talking about 2,000 years later on the other side of the world. Like in all of his stories, the wrong person is the hero. What a revolutionary. In all of his personal stories, he's doing what he's not supposed to be doing. What a, what a revolutionary. Like he's known as a glutton and a drunkard, but also a rabbi. He ate with tax collectors and sinners, but also with Pharisees. He was wise enough to debate scholars, but silly enough to play with kids. He was holy and prayerful, but then he broke laws like Sabbath for the sake of healing those who he loved. This man, he's like the perfect overlap of grace and truth, compassion and conviction. And he wants to bring that, all that to bear on you at a personal level. Jesus is 100% God, 100% human at the same time, and he wants to be with you. You. Even you. The word became flesh. Uh, in his book, Scandalous Grace, New Testament scholar Preston Sprinkle points out that uh, we never question God's power, do we? You just got to go outside if you want to catch a glimpse of his power. Look at the world around us. Look at the stars in the sky at night. You know, it's filled with stars. Like if you write, uh, write out the number of stars out there, um, it would be the number 10 with 21 zeros behind it. That's how many stars have been spoken into existence by an all-powerful God. And our one little star and our, uh, you know, little solar system here, the sun, um, it's so powerful that if you get too close to it, it'll literally just burn you up. Oh, and by too close to it, I mean within 92 million miles of it. It's so powerful that if you look at it for like five or 10 seconds, it'll fry your eyes. The intelligent designer behind our universe, wow. He must possess power beyond our comprehension, right? And rarely do we doubt that. But why then do we doubt his grace, his love for us? In fact, what if his grace radiates and burns and beams and smolders and churns with the same intensity of his power? To my two cents, I believe God created the stars as a signpost to the intensity of his character. And at the core of his character, the core of who he is is what? Love. It's all love. Uh, psychologists will tell you um, that negative self-talk is one of the most emotionally destructive things you could do. Did you know that? You see, uh, if you believe something about yourself for too long, even if it's untrue, it starts to become true. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, I'm worthless, I'm broken, my life is ruined, it's all my fault, everyone knows I'm a fraud, I'm unlovable. Now, look, that's not true, okay? You are not unlovable, I promise you that. But if you believe that lie long enough, what happens is you let it start coloring all your thoughts, all your relationships, all your actions, and tragically one year passes, and then three years, five years pass, and before you know it, it starts to become true of you. Like, you become defensive or angry or insular or insecure, unempathetic. You become a person who is incredibly difficult to love. Until... You stop playing God and you let him evaluate your identity and your worth because he was the one who designed you, stamped you with his image and was willing to die for you anyways. So quick recap, real quick. Can we see, can we see the questions again? 
kind of preached around a few of these up to this point. What kind of God makes friends with people? Our kind, my kind. Is it normal for God's to be friendly? Well, I don't think so, but I have good news. Ours is. Is he a good friend? Seems to be. He'll lay his life down for you. So what about this last one? How then does one go about being friends with God? That's the question, isn't it? And that's where I want, want to end our, our message today. I'm gonna end it here with a challenge and we're gonna worship together because while this is in, very simple to understand, it is incredibly difficult to do, but it is the key, the key to being close to the Lagos. John 15, 14, Jesus tells us how. It's very, very clear. Will you read this passage out loud with me? Let's read it out loud together. You ready? You are my friends if you do what I command. Okay. At least he was clear. He demands obedience, but he gives intimacy, friendship. There's actually two basic commands in this larger passage. Did you catch them when we read them at the beginning? 15.9, Jesus says, remain in my love. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his. It's commandment one. Then in 15.12, he says, this is my commandment, love each other. Same way as I have loved you, love each other. So remain in Jesus' love and love each other. Love God Love others. It's all love. You are my friends, he says, when you do that. Jesus is clear. The accelerant for intimacy is obedience to the love commandments. So beautiful, so simple, and yet so untried and untested. You know, G.K. Chesterton uh, once said that Christianity hasn't been tested and then found wanting. Rather, it's been found wanted, but remain untested. I just, I see that. I see it so often. So many people leave Christianity or they get bored with it or they fade out of it. And I'm thinking to myself, like, you never even tried it. Like, wait, just wait and try it. Just try it for a minute. You know, like, you never developed a rich prayer life. Try it. You never threw your heart into caring for the poor. Just try it. You never learned to read your Bible. You never entrenched yourself in relationships at your church and made them like family. You never did anything actually radical in your faith. We can't even get you to raise your hands in worship. Will you just try it? Like young people, new people, you wanna taste and see how good God is, throw yourself into radical obedience. Just try it. Try to give yourself to him moment after moment each day. Have you ever tried it? Have you ever just taken a day and you're like, you know what, this whole day, I'm gonna be tuned into what God is saying and whatever he promised me to do, I'm just gonna try it. Wherever he pushes me, I'm just gonna do that. I wonder if on the other side of that, there would be joy and satisfaction at the end of your day. Try it. Have you all seen the, this sort of awakening that's happening at Asbury right now? You've seen this? Just by a show of hands, who, who is aware of this? Okay, so most of us. Um, so. Uh, Asbury University is in Wilmer, Kentucky. Um, and the story is that on February 8th, the students had chapel like they often do, but something was, was different in that chapel service. The presence of God was just summoning them to keep worshiping, to stay around, to be obedient. 
to pray, to confess sins, to listen to the clear prompting of the Spirit and read Scripture together. So they did. And uh, 10 days later, the worship service is still going on. Yeah, it, it has not stopped for 24 hours. At night, students are dragging their mattresses into the, the sanctuary, if you will, and, and praying so that they can continue the momentum that they've been experiencing. It's poured over to multiple venues on the campus. Other colleges have thrown themselves into it. People are traveling there from all across the country to just experience the tangible presence of God uh, for a moment. Um, we've had several people from our church go. We have several students from our church there, which is really neat. Like our students there leading this. It's all led by Gen Generation Z. Our students right there in the middle of it. I saw, I saw a, a TV interview about it this week where uh, a local news station was interviewing an Asbury student about uh, what was going on on the campus. And sure enough, it was Haley who just grew up in our church, you know? So like, they're right there in the middle of it, you know? Um, I think that's so neat. Some people said they've went, and there's a few crazy people there, but for the most part, it's like the peace of God, right? Uh, my friend Terrence went. He's a pastor here in Louisville, and uh, he wrote about his experience in the Christian Standard. Um, he said, my wife and I made the hour-long drive to Wilmore, not knowing what to expect. I was still an anxious skeptic as we entered the chapel service. I was standing there looking around, ready to critique what I saw and heard when I felt a sudden sense of conviction. I watched as my wife worshiped beside me, and then I began to allow myself to be in the moment. It became clear, oof, He writes, it became clear that the biggest obstacle to my participation in this worshipful revival was my own cynical heart. Upon accepting that truth, I immediately sensed a spirit of unity, he said, and I noticed people from all walks of life, people from different denominational backgrounds sang together. Whether it was bluegrass, contemporary praise, all out worship, people were open-handed in the moment. We pleaded the case for the poor and the outcast. We pleaded for the nations, including our own. We lifted up to God our personal and communal confessions as we were called back to our first love. People praised God in African dialects and people praised God with accents placing them from the hollers of Kentucky. From boomer to preteen, hands were lifted as voices sang praises to the Lord. But Catherine Reed, um, our middle school pastor, she decided to drive up there this week as well. And uh, she wrote about it in a blog, shared it with me. I, I just want you to see what she wrote. She, she pulled up to the campus, she felt very anxious. What if I come face to face with real sin I have going on in my life, she thought. What if I feel compelled to confession? Obviously, I'm gonna have to do it. What if old wounds of the past bubble up and I get emotional? What if I cry in front of strangers? But within moments of sitting down and breathing it all in, all of these things immediately started to lift, she said. This has been a very common experience I've heard from those who have gone. And in reflecting on the experience, how I would explain it is the, is, is the recognition that all of these things, like anxieties and pain points and all that, they still existed. They'd happened. But I was seated before the one who holds all things together, including the people, events, and things I was experiencing anxiety over. And in sitting with the Father in those things, I found an ease of just surrendering to him. Just a couple weeks ago, Lindsay and I traveled to a small gathering of pastors, talk about the future of the church in America, and just be with each other 
encourage, pray. And uh, we had a worship service one night. And immediately when it started, it was just like, bang, presence. Like, it was electric. You ever been in a worship environment like that where it's like, whoa, what's happening? You know what I'm talking about? Okay. So, so it was like that. And, and after it was over with, Lindsay and I sat down for dinner. Like we were actually, we were walking back to our room. And we're like, whoa. Because we want to take, we like bottle it up and bring it back to Northeast, right? Like, what was that that we just experienced? How do we bring that here? And this is what we both agreed on. So the reason why it was just like, pow, electricity, spirit, right? Um, is because everyone in that room that night was 100% all in. That's it. It was literally a guy on stage with a guitar, right? No Jesus smoke. They were just, boom, there. Everyone was singing. People were clapping their hands or opening the Bible to read it at the prompting of the Spirit. Spouses were praying over one another. Friends were praying for friends. We were all obedient to the call of God and our worship leaders in that moment. We put real life and the rest of life aside and we're just there in this heavenly reality. We loved God as well as we could and His presence showed up. And I wonder, I wonder y'all how many revival moments like these, like short or big, that we've missed. I wonder if we've missed the spirit, like he's teed us up for a revival moment like Asbury or like that conference, but we missed it because we just wouldn't be obedient to it. All in, right? How many times have I ignored those small urges to worship God? Just like, come up front here and kneel and pray. You know, people do that sometimes. It's okay. It can be a part of our culture here. How many, how many times do people not do it though? Like how many times uh, have I ignored those butterfly moments? in my stomach where I know I should grab my friend and just pray over him or grab my wife and just apologize for her or grab, put my hands on my son's shoulders and just say, I love you, man. And I want, to, I want to tell you some truth about God. Just speak that over you right now. How many times have we ignored those stabbing convictions to rededicate our life in a moment or to give our lives just entirely to Jesus? Like how many and why? Why do we miss it? Our friend Jesus is standing there, arms open wide, ready to embrace us with complete joy, the passage says. So why do we miss it? Is it because we're too prideful to confess? Is it because we're too dignified to kneel or come forward? Too distracted to sing? Too self-conscious to raise our hands? Too cynical to believe that it could happen here? So look, I'm going to invite our worship team to lead us for the next... 20, 25 minutes. Bare minimum, y'all, for this worship set, bare minimum, put your phones away. Sing loud and be in this moment. But if you're really feeling obedient today, I wanna invite you. There is space here at the front of the stage, at the altar, the steps, if you will. I wanna invite you to come here and pray. Or I wanna invite you to put your arm around your spouse, put your arm around your kid or your friend and, and speak a word of encouragement or prayer into there. You're open your Bible and remind yourself of a special passage. Hit your knees and sing the words of a song. Let the conviction of God guide you. Uh, this week, uh, I got a, an email message from one of the great praying men of our church. Uh, he sent me an email asking, he was like, hey, would you mind just putting some cushions up front? Because I felt prompted lately to just come forward and pray. He's a little bit older, kneeling on the floor. Is a little bit difficult for him. Um, he just felt convicted by it. So I didn't have time to go get like cushions or, um, or, or carpet, but I got a couch in my office with a few of these. So, you know, Craig, here you go, man.
What if the Bible's right? What if a relationship with Jesus is what we're made for? What if the key to complete joy is obedience moment to moment? Every second can't be revival electric, but what if the reason why you have never experienced those moments is because you have resisted? I think that's the obstacle. Let's make this a thin space between heaven and earth today. Terrence's words just convict me. It became clear the biggest obstacle to my participation in this worshipful moment was my own cynical heart. So God, not us, not here, not today, we are obedient to you as we worship. Amen. Will you stand and worship with us?